This week on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast, trailblazing ballet dancer Misty Copeland. All these young, uh, young kids in general, but black and brown kids looking at you, and they should be able to tell that you're black when you're on stage. Copeland's story is one of the most inspiring we've ever featured. Her incredible will to achieve what seemed impossible matched only by her natural talent and unique style. We met at a boys and girls club in the Bronx, an organization that played a pivotal role in Misty's young life and now hosts her foundation's Be Bold after school dance program. It's, you know, social justice through dance. Copeland made history when she became the first African-American woman to be promoted to principal dancer at the prestigious American Ballet Theater. The applause stopped the show. Yeah, I mean, occasions. it was so much bigger than me. Copeland's five foot two muscular physique had already made her an outlier. It was like, no matter what I do on the stage, I'm not going to win everyone over. But her singularity and undeniable skill opened up unexpected doors from touring with Prince. I wasn't just a backup dancer for him. You know, it was, it was a, a collaborative effort. To endorsement deals and even the silver screen. And I'm doing all of this to benefit, you know, to bring more people to ballet, to diversify it. Her fierce commitment to ballet provided stability through a chaotic childhood. And that was at our lowest point, you know, on food stamps, not having a home. And a platform to promote equality and diversity in classical dance. It should be a a collective um, conversation that not just black dancers are having, but dancers, period. All that's coming up right here on the In-Depth Podcast. So I actually wanted to start uh, by talking about dating life and uh, husband. Because of the commitment to your craft, it really was kind of at the expense of social life. Right. Um, you, you were telling a story in the book about how uh, as of like senior year in high school, you hadn't had your first kiss yet. Oh, even. no. I was I was really, really um, underdeveloped, I think, in my maturity and just life experiences and also just um, this fear of like going down the wrong path, you know, coming from the circumstances I grew up in. It was like, I'm going to stay on the street and narrow. And I think I reacted the opposite of of a lot of how a lot of children might respond in that situation. Um, I just kind of was like even more introverted and, and afraid of, of um, ending up like a lot of people I saw around me. Um, so getting to New York City, it was um, this sense of freedom in a different way for the first time. Like I was going out and like meeting artists and people from different walks of life and um, and then it was actually Tay Diggs who w- walked up to me and asked if I would come to his table because his cousin was interested. And I was like, I didn't know who he was at the mm-hmm. time. <laughs> and you're thinking what? And I was like, who's your cousin? And he pointed to this guy that I had actually been eyeing all night. I was like, I'll come right over. <laughs> <laughs> and the rest is history. I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing that he was my first boyfriend. There was a, a connection, I think, you know, both of us being from California, like West Coast, being biracial. He listened really well and had like a different kind of like response and reaction to um, hearing that I was a classical dancer 
Uh, his mother was on the board of directors of San Francisco Ballet when he was younger. He actually danced in San Francisco Ballet's Nutcracker when he was a kid. I mean, he has no dance experience, even though he teases me all the time. And it's like, remember when I learned at San Francisco Ballet? I'm like, you did an audition to be like a mouse, <laughs> not yeah. quite the training of a classical dancer. But there was just a different bond and understanding and respect that I don't think I'd ever experienced. He said the first time he saw you that he was gonna like, marry, ma marry you. Yes. <laughs> what made you realize he was the one? Um, I think it was it was uh, c the consistency. You know, he he left the following morning after we met at this nightclub uh, to go back to Atlanta where he was living. He was in uh, law school there, and uh, it was his commitment to staying connected, like talking on the phone. We'd spend hours talking on the phone, and it was just like a real, genuine care. You know, the conversations we were having were, you know, about our careers and and about things of substance. Um, the, and I think it was just timing too. I was I was ready. You gave birth to your uh, first child, yes. a, a son, April of uh, yeah. twenty two. What yeah. what's that experience been like for you? Ah, uh, it's it's eye opening. Um, you know, we we are in a loving marriage and are very supportive of one another, and it's hard. It just makes me look at all of my relationships and w with a, a new kind of respect and light, uh, you know, and maybe understanding of why people are the way they are. And there's just like a different openness and love in my heart. <laughs> how do you think your upbringing impacted how you are as a mother? I think it's given me this balance of. I know what I want Jackson to have and what he deserves, but I also want him to be grounded and, and know that not everything should just be handed to him. Me and all of my siblings have worked so hard for you know the stability we had now have in our lives. We've been fortunate to feature a lot of uh, you know really successful people for episodes of the show, and that's kind of an ongoing topic we'll talk about um, where mm -hmm. you want to create opportunities for your kids that are endless and that you have earned the, the right to do, mm -hmm. but the balance between the balance, that and avoiding raising a little brat. Exactly. Yeah. It's on our minds every day. Really? I mean, he's only six months old yeah. and we're still like, do we see it coming out? Do we see a little brat coming yeah. out? <laughs> like, what do we need to do? <laughs> yeah. How about the hardest part so far of motherhood? Um, I think it's just not having guilt I'd say that's the hardest thing. You know, I, I went back to not dancing work, but everything else that I'm doing, pretty immediate. But there's just this, you know, like sense of I can do more or I'm not, you know, I'm not doing enough or um, I'm going and I'm, I'm missing, you know, f f one of his feedings or something. And, and I think that's been the hardest part for me is just trying not to get caught up in the guilt. Uh, uh, more kids? Yes, I would love to. I mean, I'm 40 now, uh -huh. so, you know, it's, I, I mean, women have children into their 40s now. But I come from a big family. I'm one of six children, and I've always wanted to have my child to have a sibling or siblings. Um, it was one of the best things about my childhood was having, all, you know, five best friends right there with me every day. Conscious decision to have kids uh, later in life? Yes and no. I feel this is when it was supposed to happen. Um, but it's also really difficult as a classical dancer, as an athlete, as a woman. Um, and so, you know, if I were to have had a child when I was a soloist at ABT, I don't think I would have become a principal dancer. 
which no. is terrible to think about. Why you do know. you say that? It's a, you know, you're looked at differently. Maybe you're not taking your career seriously. To, to what extent do you think it's important that that perception uh, changes? You learn so much by living your life and you become a better artist by having all these experiences. And so there's this like, this kind of double-edged sword where in professional companies, they expect you to be so committed to your craft and not have these outside experiences. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, we want you to be this artist, but you have no experiences. So like, what are you drawing from? So, you know, I, I think that it's important that we're treated like adults in the classical ballet world, which is rare. You know, we're often treated like children and called boys and girls as adults. There's just like a, a respect level that we, you can be responsible and have a child or have these other, you know, outside experiences and still be committed to your craft. Sports psychologist, hmm. uh, what made you decide to go? It got to a point um, where I started to have anxiety around performing, um, and I've just felt it, it was the smart thing to do to, to speak to a professional and, and, and to get tools to how, you know, understanding how to deal with those things. And there has never been stage fright. It's always been um, a sense of comfort, like in this bubble where no one could touch me and I could just uh, express myself through, through movement. But got to a point where, um, you know, being put on this kind of trajectory of, to be the first and, and the pressures of this white ballet world that I felt never was gonna accept me. It was like, no matter what I do on the stage, I'm not going to win everyone over. And, uh, and that started to develop anxiety in me around my performances. Some would probably think that as you've had more success, <laughs> the criticism hmm. or the noise would maybe go away, no, but for no. you, it got to you more, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, I think that it was like a combination of not only my success within uh, the ballet community and the ballet world, but to go beyond it and mm -hmm. to go outside of it, you know, with endorsement deals, the, you know, books, speaking engagements, um, that, you know, the ballet world's not used to seeing that. And I'm doing all of this to benefit you know, to bring more people to ballet, to diversify it, and that's how you do it. You have to go outside of the small, uh, isolated bubble that the ballet world has existed in for forever. What did you learn from uh, uh, talking Going. to, yeah. You know, it's, it's important, I think, for me to check in like daily, especially before performances, um, and get a sense of, um, like why I'm feeling anxious. You know, I, w I went through a period where in the midst of preparing to do the 32 fuetes, which is one of the most difficult technical feats in the classical technique and repertoire, and in the middle of preparing for this, I'm thinking about what some critic is gonna write and then completely losing my focus and not being able to physically accomplish what I needed to on the stage. Um, like that, that was beyond anything I'd ever experienced up until that point. And so to be able to step back and, um, and just be present and in the moment and uh, stop getting ahead of myself.
you wrote in your book when you were younger and growing up. Um, I, I think I was born worried. Um, <laughs> th there wasn't a day I didn't feel some kind of anxiety. My panic would begin from the moment I woke up. Yes. Uh, how so? Yeah, this fear of not knowing um, what was going to come day in and day out in my in my childhood. Um, you know, whether it was my mom waking us up in the middle of the night and saying, like, we're leaving your dad, we're moving, and not knowing where we were going, not having a consistent place to stay, or knowing if we were gonna have food on the table. All of these things just created this, this severe anxiety inside of me. I would sometimes go to sleep with my school clothes on, with this fear that like I wasn't gonna wake up and have enough time to get ready, or I'd need to be at school an hour early, and just, like, I needed a sense of control. And you would map the route out yeah. Right before, like, a, a, a school year? <laughs> I would rehearse going to school. I would um, have my mom take me to school and, uh, and walk from classroom to classroom to make sure I knew where all the classrooms were going to be, how much time it was going to take me to get from one place to the other. It was really just, you know, this young, insecure girl, like, looking for control in some way because I didn't have any control over anything that was happening in my life. And it's like a scary feeling. I didn't really have anything that allowed me to find who I wanted to be until I started dancing. How did a Lifetime movie impact you when you were seven? <laughs> um, my mother grew up dancing. She was a professional cheerleader for the Kansas City Chiefs football team. My sister was like on the drill team at the middle school. So I had a connection to movement, but I didn't really understand what that looked like and what it was I was drawn to. But um, I was attracted to gymnastics. Uh, so whenever the Olympics you know, would come on TV, I was watching floor exercises. And then this Lifetime movie came on about Nadia Comaneci, who uh, was the first to score a perfect 10. And there was something about her story that um, was so incredible to me, to see these amazing ups and downs, but this connection that she always had to, to gymnastics. And, um, but, but looking back, the floor exercises, the way they move, it was so similar to classical dance. Though I'd never seen classical dance, but I was drawn to that. And that just kind of like opened up my mind to uh, what was possible. I heard you sat for a week observing class before. Yeah, it might have been more than you, that, but yeah. You, okay, before you first yes. participated in it. Yeah. And then you're at Boys and Girls Club <laughs> yes. and you quit after your first class or, or think about quitting. Yeah, um, I've had just gotten on the drill team. This was like the, the biggest thing I'd ever done in my life to decide I wanted to be on this dance team where you were putting yourself out there and in front of people performing. Um, and then I not only auditioned for the drill team, I auditioned for the captain of the drill team and, and made it and was named captain. Um, so I finally found something that was just enough outside of my comfort zone. So then when I was asked to take this free ballet class um, from the drill team coach, she thought I had a lot of potential. It was like, are you kidding me? Like, this is so far outside of my comfort zone. And the teacher, Cynthia Bradley at the time, you know, she just kept pushing me, you know, it was, she was like, it's okay that you don't have the right attire. That was another thing too. It's like not fitting in, not having a, a leotard and tights and slippers and being on a basketball court. I was like, this just all feels wrong. So I sat in the bleachers for weeks um, and every class, you know, Cynthia would come over and just say like, just come down one more, one more seat on the bleachers and like just get closer and closer. And um, it was scary. It took going to, the, to her ballet school, 
uh, where she gave me a full scholarship. And um, once I was in the studio, was in the proper attire, was surrounded by other dancers, and I, could, and I was looking in the mirror, and I felt beautiful, and I felt in control, uh, that's when it all clicked and changed. You wrote, for a little girl who lived in terror of making a mistake, of being embarrassed or criticized in front of others, the, the stage was somehow an oasis. Mm -hmm. What made it that for you? When you look out into the audience, you can't see anyone's faces. It's just a sea of like darkness, of black. Um, but you feel the energy. And then, you know, the fact that no one could say anything to me, like you train and you have the coaches or ballet masters and mistresses that are saying stuff to you while you're dancing and yelling out things or there's constant feedback. But when you get on stage, it all goes away mm -hmm. and you're responsible for yourself. Um, and there's something so empowering about that to be able to be responsible, be in control um, and do something I love. Being able to express myself uh, through nonverbal uh, art form, um, it was the, the perfect fit for me. Your mom. Yeah. Um, you said her childhood was kind of filled with pain. Yeah. Um, in what ways? My mother's adopted. Um, she never knew who her, you know, really where she came from. She was raised by uh, two older parents um, that died when she was pretty young and raised by her adopted uh, like cousins and aunts. Um, I think never really having a true connection to any group of people, like never really having a family. Her mother was an alcoholic. She dealt with, uh, you know, she was married very young and he was murdered. And there was just a lot of searching for uh, family. And I think she, she created that by having six children, um, you know, made a family for herself. But there, there was a lot of uh, abuse and, and instability and, um, and movement in her life and then eventually in ours. And you said you always loved her. Um, but you didn't really understand her. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that as an adult, like it's easier to look back and say something like that. Right. I think that as, as a young person without a support structure or system around her, um, she was just kind of trying to do all of this on her own. I didn't always understand the, the, the constant moving ahead rather than stopping, standing still and examining oneself. When you have stability and you have a support system around you, it's easier to say that and, and be able to look at yourself, which I have as an adult. Explain what would happen where she would fear for his, her life and mm -hmm. essentially you guys would have to immediately pack up yeah. and move on. It happened many times, and we'd never know when it was going to happen. But yeah, whether it was you know, you know, physical abuse in, in the house, which happened on many occasions with different husbands, um, and, and you would you would witness that. Yes, witness it. A lot of verbal and emotional abuse as well. And I remember very vividly, you know, being like uh, in in the middle of the night or something, and. Uh, and someone coming and, and a car pulling up and all of us just taking what we could and just jumping in the car and, uh, you know, out of, out of fear of, um, yeah, her, her, our lives, you know, just not being in a safe situation um, and having to kind of go hide out uh, for a little while in other people's homes and sleep on the floor, staying in motels and um, just a lot of 
a lot of uh, chaos in that way. One time, I believe you heard gunshot and then yeah. a, a thud. I must have been 14 years old and we were staying at, you know, we would call them aunt and uncle, but they were not related to us, <laughs> friends of my mom's from somewhere. And they lived in downtown LA and uh, there was a drive-by shooting and I ended up with this guy bleeding on our porch and trying to help him and uh, just things I shouldn't have seen. You know, there were guns in the house and I remember my brother, uh, you know, finding one and pointing it at me and just the, the thought of like, uh, just no security. I felt that a lot as a child and that was, you know, just added to the, the anxiety that I had. What was the, kind of the hardest part of life when your mom applied for food stamps? Um, it was around 12 or 13 years old and, and that was at our lowest point, you know, on food stamps, not having a home. Like it, from day to day, it was like, are we gonna have enough money to pay this week, weekly rent at a motel? Um, you know, but it, it was also just like this shame and this sense of like having a secret for most of my childhood. So I never had close friends. Uh, my siblings are my best friends. And you know, it was just this fear of people finding out and judging. We didn't even live in San Pedro where I was going to school. We lived far away, I had to take the you know, public bus. So then when I was asked to take this free ballet class um, and the teacher, Cynthia Bradley at the time, she didn't even know the extent of my home circumstances and, um, and wouldn't find out until I actually told her I had to quit dancing and she drove me home and saw that I was living in a motel. And that was when she invited me to live with her. Before she found that out, um, just to give her context, mm -hmm. um, how did she really build your self-confidence? When I met Cindy, I'd never met someone who was so free in her body, in herself, um, and open and, and accepting of me. Um, I never felt judged by her. Um, she, she was just a, a support, uh, a friend, a mentor, all of these things to me. Uh, and a ballet teacher that was just so open to giving as much of herself to me to get me to where I needed to be uh, professionally. It didn't, I mean, she make you feel like beautiful and that you'd be performing for kings and queens and like all, all this stuff like kind of zeroed in in yes. terms of her focus on you in a way that I'd never had. Yeah. Yeah. Being, being one of six children, there's not a lot of focus individually, you know, that I experienced. And, um, and she also had these grand predictions of what my life and career would be like. Of course, you know, I think at the time I just thought, she, she was a little like quirky and I was like, oh, like that's cool that she's saying all of that, but I don't know how realistic it is. Um, but to have someone that had that much belief in you was something I needed. And so your mom c kind of says, look, because of how far away ballet is, it just is gonna have to stop. Yeah. Um, take me to the conversation mm -hmm. that Cindy had with your mom at the motel and what you remember from that? Yeah, I remember just being this ball of tension on the way home, just waiting for that moment when we turned into the Sunset Inn and Cindy realized that's where I was living. And so uh, as soon as we got, we turned into the parking lot, I ran out of the car, like I didn't even say bye. It was just like, I'm so mortified 
what child want, is, you know, wants to show that they, they're living in this dingy old motel, like off the side of the highway, you know, we all living in one room and um, it was embarrassing. So I, you know, I went upstairs and um, kind of just went back into my shell, like the person I was before dance. I sat in the corner and was just like zoned out. And um, a couple of minutes later, there was a knock at the door and Cindy had turned around. She had left and was just kind of in shock with what she just witnessed and then decided to turn back around. And uh, she spoke with my mom for a while and my mom turned to me and said, Cindy asked if, if you would wanna go and live with her so you can continue training. And it was shocking, and I was like, yes. <laughs> um, no, it, really not a doubt in your mind? Not at all. It was like the thought of not dancing again, it was like this hole already, you know, in, in what my life would be. Um, I become so attached to it, and it started to develop as a person in ways I never had before. I was actually stunned that my mom let me go. So, you know, I took the few clothes I had and put it in my book bag and left. It was the most loving, uh, supportive, warm environment. Like from the moment I stepped into their house for the first time, again, I just feel like I spent so much of my life feeling judged and, and or uh, waiting for judgment to come. And, um, and I never ever felt that in their house. They made me feel like I was a part of the family, always. What's your opinion now on what transpired during that period with the uh, emancipation and court case and all of that? My mom was uh, trying to get a restraining order against the Bradleys. Um, you know, I was uh, starting the process of getting uh, emancipated. So it, it blew up into something bigger than I ever imagined. It became a national story, you know, uh, on talk shows. I feel like things happened so quickly and there wasn't a lot of time spent thinking about what the repercussions could be on me. And, um, you know, if things didn't go smoothly, which they didn't, <laughs> I, I, I think that it was just kind of a panic uh, to keep me training, um, you know, a fear of if I went back home and stayed with my mom, who knows what would have happened with me in my career, you know, in those environments. And then I, you know, I understand why my mother would react that way. I can't imagine being a mother now, being in a situation where you felt like you, um, you know, didn't have control over your own child. Because your mom essentially said, need to come home. It was a complicated, complicated time. And um, I eventually ended up back home uh, with my mom and, um, and she eventually got an apartment in San Pedro and I continued to train at another school. It took me like a decade just to be able to say the words and revisit that time without getting so emotional. Um, and, but yeah, I've had, I've had you know, 20 plus years to heal and, um, and also recognize that you know, it's not my fault. I think when I first was coming out of that situation that I felt a lot of guilt. Everyone knew about our home situation, like the secret that we all had. Um, so it took time for me to, to, to recognize that um, it wasn't my fault, that I was a child. Um, and, you know, just trying to maintain good relationships with everyone. I was going to say, how's time impacted your relationship? I have great relationships with, with everyone, yeah. <laughs> which, is, which is incredible. So your dad, um, you wake up, you know, one day, I don't 
think you'd seen them since you were two years old mm -hmm. and decide uh, you want to, to reconnect. <laughs> what made you make that decision? I think it was um, getting to a place in my young adult life, you know, as a professional, um, as an artist, and wanting to understand like who I am. And I think that it took like looking back and connecting with my father to really understand that and become like the person and the artist that I wanted to become. Um, my, my oldest brother, Doug Jr., um, he, he was when he reached out first uh, and found him um, in Wisconsin. And uh, I think it was maybe a year later that I called my brother and I said, like, I, I'm ready, like, I want to meet him. Um, so it was a beautiful, you know, reunion, I guess. And me and my brother, Doug, we both resemble him so much. So like the three of us, I felt like we're connected in a different way. Because you'd never even seen a photo, right? I'd seen a very few but it was like looking at my brother. It was mind blowing. <laughs> and how did the process of reconnecting compare to what you would have thought? Um, you know, you imagine it's gonna be like this lifetime movie, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> and, um, and that I was gonna have this like emotional kind of outburst, but it wasn't. It was meeting a stranger, ultimately. And it took time to, to build an emotional bond and connection with him, but uh, I'm, you know, I would never take back going through that and, and, and eventually meeting him. All right, I want to completely sh uh, switch gears here now that I've grilled you about uh, <laughs> family life. I actually wanted to talk about uh, Prince. What happens where one day somebody asks for your number and then that afternoon he's on the phone? Yeah, it's pretty surreal, you know. It, it's, I just, there's so many things in my life that happen that I'm just like, it's so crazy that it's like it was meant to be. I was at a point in my career, I had been a soloist for a couple of years and I was kind of at a standstill. You know, even thinking about my promotion uh, when Kevin McKenzie promoted me to soloist, I didn't feel like a real sense of support, like I believe in you and we're doing this. So, you know, from the time I became a soloist, it was kind of like shaky and I kind of felt on my own and um, trying to figure out uh, what my future looked like and whether or not I belo really belonged in this world as a black dancer. Really? Yeah, even, you know, up until that point of being, you know, I was this, only the second female, African-American female soloist to be promoted to that position in the company's history. I just didn't feel like a big sense of like guidance in, in what it meant to be a soloist and work towards being a principal dancer. Um, and I, then I got a call from someone asking if uh, Prince could have my number. And none of it made sense to me. I was shocked and um, I said, okay. And I remember him calling while I was in the middle of a ballet class. And he pretty much said, I've been looking for you for over a year and I haven't been able to get in contact with you, which I was like, that's crazy. But um, he uh, had remade the song um, Crimson and Clover and he just had, you know, when he has his mind set on something, like he is going to do it. And he envisioned me dancing in this video. And he ended up shooting the video with another dancer and, uh, and just thinking like, this isn't it. This isn't what I had envisioned. So finally connected and uh, within a couple of days, I was in LA um, 
improvising on the set and uh, and you know that was the start of this beautiful friendship that brought me to a, a better place of understanding like what I wanted out of my career um, which is why I was saying like the time you know the timing was just so perfect I ended up touring with him all over the world um, and having that experience of, of you know someone that was such a creative genius that believed in me and was pushing me to explore um, my dance in a, in a different way. Um, it just it allowed me to become the artist that I am today. And the touring started in Europe and then it came uh, stateside. Yes. Tell about those rehearsals at the <laughs> IZAD in uh, New Jersey. Yeah, um, it was an interesting time. You know, Prince was great that he, he understood that ABT and my career as a ballerina, like that's my career. And it's amazing to have the opportunity to do these performances outside of ABT and also expose his audience to classical dance, maybe who didn't have interest or would never step into the Met Metropolitan Opera House. And um, But I was in the midst of rehearsing for The Nutcracker uh, for ABT when his performances were also going on in Jersey, so. Talk about a grueling schedule. It was unbelievable. I would finish rehearsing around nine or 10, and then Prince would pick me up in a limo and rehearse all night there for his shows and then wake up in the morning and have my full day with ABT. You know, it was I was young, and these are sacrifices that I wanted to make because I I could see the bigger picture. And it's Prince. And it's Prince. Right. And it was, it was an incredible experience, you know, performing at Madison Square Garden. And what was it about that moment at MSG? Mm -hmm. There was an energy and a connection with another artist on stage that I'd never uh, experienced before. It was unbelievable to see this person like blossom into this magnetic thing on stage and to be a part of that and to have him, uh, you know, the first time that I, I came onto the stage for my solo and he introduced me, Misty Copeland, like to his audience was just shocking. You know, I wasn't just a backup dancer for him. You know, it was, it, it was a, a collaborative effort and it, and it really... Um, You're thinking what in that moment? It, it shocked me. I like jumped out of my skin and I had to like get back in my skin to finish, to finish performing yeah. because I wasn't expecting for that type of acknowledgement or respect or introduction and um, it was a beautiful moment. In the impact he had on your self-confidence and understanding your self-worth mm -hmm. was what? To have another artist, again, of his caliber um, kind of say to me to acknowledge the power um, in, in being unique, which is like the opposite of what we're told in ballet. <laughs> you know, it's like everyone's trying so hard to fit into this cookie-cutter mold of what you know, generations and generations of dancers have looked like. And, you know, Prince was like, you're the only black woman in the company. Do you know what power that, you know, you have by like standing out and being different and being unique? And I never looked at myself that way. He gave me a sense of, um, yeah, confidence and, and empowerment that I'd never recognized before. There was a, a New York Times article titled, uh, where are all the black swans? Mm -hmm. And you said that it was the first article you ever read reflecting the heartbreak and the loneliness that you felt. Mm -hmm. um, how so? 
you know, when this article came out, um, I felt like it was the first time I was experiencing acknowledgement outside of the black dance community that this was an issue. To have it be re recognized in such a concrete way, it just like opened the floodgates of all the things I've been like, you know, that I have to hold inside in, in order to like keep it together every day <laughs> and not, you know, be realistic maybe and think like what will ever come of my career? Is this, is this a reality for me? Instead, it was like convincing myself day in and day out that like this, yes, I can do this. I can maybe break the glass ceiling. Um, and then this article came out and it was just like, ugh, I don't know that it's ever gonna happen for me. Um, why am I any more special than any black dancer that's come before me to be able to you know, push through and become a principal dancer? And then it was somebody you were friends with in the company mm -hmm. whose reaction really had kind of a negative impact yeah. on you. Who didn't intend it that not, way, No, probably. not at all. Um, to, to have someone who doesn't maybe understand the pain um, and, and uh, the realities around all the roadblocks for black dancers, um, you know, to read that article and, and, and think it was silly or that it maybe wasn't, wasn't accurate or true um, was, was devastating. And it just kind of was a reflection of, of what I felt everyone at ABT was probably thinking, or everyone in the dance world that um, didn't understand uh, our history as black dancers in the ballet world, the importance of our impact, um, and the fact that we're not given the same opportunities or access to be a part of this world. And I think that the ballet world comfortably has been able to live in this very white bubble and there's no repercussions for their lack of uh, support, uh, acceptance, uh, inclusion. It should be a, uh, a collective um, conversation that not just black dancers are having, but dancers, period. Um, the lack of diversity, uh, the racism that still exists, you know, even if it's th these micro, aggressions, you know, having dancers of color not be allowed to wear tights that are their skin color, that they're being forced in order to fit into a company environment. You have to wear pink tights and pink ballet slippers, what representative of a white person's skin. Or you don't have the right hair texture to put into these hairstyles, so therefore, you know, we're not going to accept you in this company. There was a situation where you were playing a part in, I believe, Sleeping Beauty? Yeah. Uh, and the makeup person's coming <laughs> over with white powder. Right. What yeah. was it about that that made you decide to finally kind of take a stand? I think it was, you know, coming to a place where I felt com starting to feel comfortable in, in my skin and um, with who I wanted to be, especially when you're on stage and you're you know, a role model and you're, you know, these, all these young, uh, young kids in general, but black and brown kids looking at you and they should be able to tell that you're black when you're on stage. And, um, it just, I just hit my limit, I guess. And I turned to the makeup artist and I, and I said, why do I have to be a white cat? You know, I was playing the role of Puss in Boots in Sleeping Beauty. And, and she just kind of looked at me and she was like, 
I guess you don't. And I was, and so we made me myself a brown cat. And it, you know, it was a small, like kind of silly step, but it, but it, it, was, it wasn't, wasn't really small. Yeah. It wasn't. I've had these conversations and small adjustments are made, but and they're ongoing conversations that are still happening today. When the Dance Theater of Harlem was first pursuing you, what was it about thinking about your mom that made you decide to stick with your trajectory? Yeah, you know, the thought of watching this, you know, this uh, pattern from my mother of running away and starting a new situation that ended up with the same issues because they were never dealt with. Um, there was something about that that was triggered in me when I thought about leaving ABT and going to Dance Theater of Harlem. Um, you know, am I, am I just running away so that things are gonna be easier for me because I'm surrounded by other black dancers? Or do I stay and, and really get to the root of the issue? How do we make changes, systemic changes in the classical ballet world where a black dancer can be in a white majority company? The impact that you'd like your success to have had on people of color would be what? I think that, you know, within our history in America, I think often black people, black women are kind of pinned against each other. And, and we're in situations where there's one opening, one position for a dancer of color in a company. And it, and it just doesn't create a, an environment that, you know, is for us to support one another. And I think it's important that we, we create a, a different um, system in that the next generation of, of black and brown dancers feel a supportive environment around them coming into this space. On the foundation front, what are your goals with that? It's to bring more diversity and equity to, to ballet, expose young people that don't have the, uh, the means to be a part of it, don't have the access, don't, uh, don't have maybe the support or their families or caretakers whoever don't have an understanding of this world, but it, that it can be an outlet. It can be a way of developing tools and becoming uh, better citizens in, in their society and society in their communities. It's, you know, social justice through dance. I wanted to ask about uh, playing through injury, specifically when you're uh, playing uh, Firebird. Right. Um, you know, I've had severe, I've had severe injuries throughout my career as any other professional athlete does. And if you could uh, rattle off as many as you can right. think of. Okay. <laughs> There's a muscle on the side of my foot that completely went away in my left, uh, my left ankle um, because of an attachment or something that was ripped and was never attended to. Um, so I think that's the reason that I have ended up with the shin injury because I didn't have the right support on that side of my leg. But I've had a stress reaction in my lower lumbar where I was out for a year. I was wearing a back brace from my rib cage to my hip for eight months, 23 hours a day. I was 19 years old and I was, had only been a professional for a year and they told me, I don't know if you're ever gonna be able to really you know, do an arabesque or arch your back in the way that you need to. I did, I was able to, <laughs> I healed completely. And that was um, a reoccurring theme, Doc telling you that I you won't. might not be able that to might. do something yeah. Here, right? Yeah. I mean, I've learned so much throughout these injuries and it's been an important lesson to get more than one opinion um, uh, and um, trust yourself and, your, and the knowledge
knowledge you have of your body because you know your body best. Mm -hmm. uh, the most severe was the injury that I uh, had in 2012. Um, preparing to perform the Firebird. Uh, it had been a long season of, of learning and rehearsing principal roles, doing performances on tour and not resting enough. Um, you know, that fear of um, this is my one shot. I can't take a day off, which is not smart. You know, the reality of it, you have to rest. But that um, was a hugely consequential role for yes, you for multiple reasons. Yes, to be the lead, you know, the first principal dancer in a full-length classical work as a black woman at American Ballet Theater. I needed to get on the stage at Lincoln Center at the Metropolitan Opera House. And, and as a black woman, what that meant uh, was huge and it was the most unbelievable experience of having half more than half of the audience at the Met uh, full of black and brown people and young people that we'd never seen that at the Met. I remember one of the uh, cleaning women that had worked at the Met for like 40 years um, and she came to me and she asked if it was my family in the audience and I was like well I don't have 2,500 family members <laughs> that I know of they're all coming to support me because it was like to see that much diversity was unbelievable, but it stopped um, the, the applause. Stopped the show. On yeah, multiple I mean, occasions. it was it was something that I'd never experienced before, and it was so much bigger than me. Um, and then to go from that extreme high to you know the following morning, I went into the artistic uh, director's office and I said, "I'm in so much pain, I can't." perform anymore. And no one knew the extent of how much pain I was in because I knew that if I let them know, they would have taken me out of rehearsals, they would have taken me from performances, I would have found out the severity of my injury much earlier, mm -hmm. and I would have never done the Firebird and I never would have been promoted to principal dancer. So I knew the risk I was taking and, and why. And at, you know, even at that point it was like, if that's the one show I get to do as a principal dancer, you know, with that title role, that's enough. But I ended up finding out I had six stress fractures, six stress reactions in my uh, tibia, and three of them were dreaded black line fractures, which are almost full breaks through the bone. Um, it was bad, like really, really bad. And I did saw- Did it surprise even you? Yes. Okay. I did not realize it was that bad. Mm -hmm. And I was told by, I think, six or seven doctors that I would never dance again. And I, the last doctor I saw was the one I, I stopped with, and that was Dr. Martin O'Malley. And you know he uh, is a surgeon for professional athletes. And he said, oh, I see this injury all the time with football players and basketball players. Um, and I can put a plate in and we'll have you back on stage. And I was on stage in eight months. So tell about this uh, really loud, very angry rap music that you'll <laughs> sing along to when injured. <laughs> I, that's so funny. I think that, um, <laughs> I think there's been a connection. Well, for me, connection to music mm -hmm. my whole life. Um, I don't know about angry, but um, there's just something that, you know, even if I'm preparing for like a Swan Lake where people might assume that I'm listening to like Tchaikovsky or something before, and it's like whatever m mood I'm in, there's a lot of like hip hop or like a lot of Drake, like before a Swan Lake performance that might get me like, hyped up, but it's it's a range of music that allows for me to express myself um, 
and, and prepare to express myself on stage that just um, activate something. In contrast to what you'd listen to when your family was watching sports back in the day and you'd go into your bedroom, right? <laughs> Mariah Carey. Yeah. A big <laughs> yeah. Mariah Carey fan. Huge, yeah, yeah. Having that, um, that connection to someone who uh, I felt I could relate to, you know, being a biracial girl, um, you know, not c coming from a lot of instability like, you know, she did growing up and, um, and I don't think I recognized until I was older, like the power of representation. And that's what I was seeing when I, when I looked at Mariah Carey and her success and, um, and you know, being given an opportunity and reaching this, this level of success. Uh, it, was, it was really impactful. You wrote in your memoir a while back, quote, when I can't dance, I feel lost. Hmm. Describe that feeling. Throughout my childhood, was I was like searching for uh, a place to belong, and I, thinking about it, like we're here at a boys and girls club, and I think that was the first place that I started to feel a sense of um, like stability and consistency in my life. Coming to the club every day, having adults around that you know cared about whether or not my homework was going to get done, you know, the mentoring and the tutoring, um, and then finding ballet, uh, it really gave me a sense of purpose and in a way I'd never experienced. So um, that just kind of became like the, the stability in my life. So, you know, even as an adult, when I would take time off, um, it was like my center of gravity was like gone. And how would that come out in you when yeah. you would be off? Yeah. Um, you know, when I don't have like this sense of control over like a, a situation or my body in particular, um, I don't know, get like agitated and um, just not not grounded and not myself. Just taking a ballet class, that like ritual of taking the same ballet class over and over again. It's a sense of, of um, you know, like practice, like yoga or, you know, breathing meditation that that it can give you and just coming back into your body day after day. So then these past three years yeah, have right? been like <laughs> what for you? <laughs> these past three years um, is the longest that I've gone without dancing at the level I'm used to. Um, and it's kind of been replaced with other things though. Um, of course, my son coming into my life, there's like a, a different focus. Mm -hmm. There's part of myself that, I, that is not feeling like whole because I haven't been dancing the way that I, I need to. Initially, I was really thrilled to stop, to take a break. Oh, you um, were? Yeah, okay. initially, um, you know, it's been a long run for me. Um, and, you know, I think about a lot of dancers who are principal dancers and typically will step into that role um, pretty young, you know, in their 20s. Your rehearsals uh, are, are intense, but they're shorter kind of spurts. Um, and that my whole experience was like the opposite of what's typical. Um, and so, you know, at 32 years old and, and, you know, having had that run of working, working, working towards this goal for that long, um, it's, it's exhausting. And, you know, with the pressures of being African-American, of being the first, um, 
I got to a point where right before the pandemic, I ended up with a back injury and had to pull out of my final performances before the company, you know, before there were no more live performances. And um, I was ready. You know, I, I think I was at a point where I was, I was already starting to think about, you know, like what, what the end looks like of, of, of a professional career with American Ballet Theater. So I kind of got used to not being in that routine of, of things. Um, but there wasn't that same sense of groundedness throughout this time because I haven't had that. In a rehearsal season, we're in the ballet studio taking class every morning um, from 10.15 to 11.45, and then we rehearse from noon until seven. And for the majority of my career, uh, I wasn't getting breaks. You, know, you get a five minute break on yep. the hour to use bathroom, get a drink of water. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then during a performance season, you're in the studio from like 10.30 to 5.30, and then mm -hmm. performances start at 7.30, and that can go to like 11 o'clock. It's more physical than I think a lot of people realize. And all of that training is, you know, of course, going towards becoming a character, telling story through movement, uh, keeping our technique refined, but it's also about making it look effortless. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why people are, you know, assume that it's so simple because we train really hard to make it look that way. So I understand you might be starting to get a little anxiety at the thought of going back in January? A lot. I have many nights that I wake up and I'm like, oh my God, I'm not gonna be ready, even though I have like really a year before I, I, I plan to be back on stage. But I have those moments where I wake up and I'm just like, it's just, it's just never enough time. But I think all dancers feel that way, even when you're in the best shape of your life. And then by the time you're on stage in front of an audience, it'll have been almost four years right or, or somewhere uh, upwards of my last that? live performance was december of 2019. so you had said how a single day off can cause your muscles to forget what your mind knows by heart the ballet technique is so incredible i mean just the idea the thought of standing on point um, on one leg and balancing all of your weight um, it takes it takes years and years of of practice um, but it's it's a, a life, you know, commitment to be able to uh, get to this place and, you know, you take one day off and those tiny little muscles that people don't even think, I mean, these aren't the big muscles that you think about when you're in the gym and you're using, these are the smallest little muscles underneath and between your toes, those types of <laughs> muscles and yeah. tendons and ligaments that you take one day off. And of course your mind remembers exactly how it should feel. Uh, but your body so easily forgets. I wonder if, you know, when you get going again, if there's any chance you could just be like, screw this, been there, done that, had, <laughs> had unbelievable success, ready to move on. <laughs> I don't know. You know, as an athlete, really, anything can happen to your body. You know, of course you have control over a lot of things and in, in getting rest and taking care of, you know, uh, training correctly and all that. But in the end, like, you don't have that much control over something happening to you, like, physically. And so um, I think I've always had this mindset of, of really enjoying everything I'm doing in that moment. So I feel like I've done everything. I really have. 
yeah. and then some. You know, it's it's a bonus people to go on stage and and do roles that you've been doing for years and continue to grow in them. Like that's an incredible privilege. But I've done I've done it all right. and you know, I'm I'm so content and happy with my career, but you know, I would love to be able to give back to the audiences who have supported me. I feel good about where I am, but it's I think it's about a celebration. I know when people used to ask you about the future, you would always say rehearsal. Yes. Uh, <laughs> what will make you realize when you're ready to be done? I think once I'm back on stage, like I'll have more. It'll, I think it'll make more sense to me. And I've just always felt like it's gonna come to a point where it's like you have to pass the baton to the next person. For the, for the good of the culture, of the morale of the company, like I feel like that's always been something in the back of my mind. Mm -hmm. And right now, you know, I've been away from the company for three years and it's a different company. It's a young company. I'm one of the oldest, you know, members in this company. Which so, is crazy to think. Which is too. crazy. Yeah. But um, I, you know, it's this, it's a circle of dance life, right. and I think it's a, it's okay to let go and and um, and give opportunity to the next generation. Thanks for listening to my chat with Misty Copeland. To see more of our time together, including our visit to a Be Bold class and her attempt to teach me how to plie, go to youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. As always, before you go, please leave us a rating and review. Thanks again for listening.